Uh, good morning. I uh, invite you to stand for the uh, reading of the scripture. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fail. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. The word of God. We're beginning a new series today, which uh, reflects something that I've been really thinking a lot about recently, and it's all about defiantly. And we're going to look at how to live defiantly in difficult circumstances, how to live defiantly in a decadent culture, and today we're going to look at how to live defiantly when we face destructive conflicts, and we're focusing on Psalm 13. The message is entitled, Pardon the Interruption. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house and to be reminded again of who you are and what you're doing. And uh, thank you for the testimony of a life well lived and for young ones who are experiencing your reality through healing. And uh, for all of us that we have the opportunity to experience your grace and your freedom on a daily basis. Thank you for your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Because it's Stampede Week, I'd like to uh, begin by telling you a Western yarn. An outlaw and his gang were hiding in a cave somewhere out in the desert badlands. The sheriff and his posse were scouring the crags and canyons looking for them. After having no success, they bedded down for the night. But the outlaw found their camp and very carefully, very silently, made his way past the sleeping deputies until he found the sheriff, who was not just sawing logs, we're talking a lumber mill in full production. It must have scared away the coyotes. So here was his nemesis, unconscious, vulnerable. This was the man who had turned him into a fugitive, the corrupt sheriff who was making his life miserable. One well-placed thrust of the knife could end it all. Problem solved. But he didn't. The outlaw just cut off a piece of the sheriff's coat and disappeared into the night. Now, of course, that's just a cowboy version of an incident from the life of David when he was public enemy number one and King Saul was hunting him down. Throughout his career, David faced a lot of conflict. Imagine having the head of state, 
mobilizing the RCMP and SWAT teams to bring you in dead or alive. And the conflict didn't end with Saul. There was a rebellion led by his own son that forced David to run for his life. But the most remarkable thing is that David did not retaliate against these enemies. He could have killed Saul, but he spared the king's life and later returned his wardrobe sample and sought reconciliation. It's one of the most distinctive features of David's character. No vindictiveness, no passion for revenge. His amazing grace reminds us of uh, Romans chapter 12, where it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. It is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That was David. No one handled conflict better than David. It didn't even seem to bother him. Maybe it was like the cartoon where Lucy is blasting little brother Linus. You blockhead. You numbskull. You're a disgrace to the human race. But Linus is still smiling, so Charlie Brown asks, doesn't that bother you? And Linus says, I try not to take it personally. I wish I could do that. Here's David in the crosshairs of hatred for most of his life. Few people have ever had as many enemies as David had, but it didn't even seem to bother him. Or did it? While David acted righteously towards his enemies, all that conflict did take a significant emotional toll. And it's all documented in the transcripts of his therapy sessions where he revealed the emotional turmoil of his heart. For example, lucky Psalm 13 here, where in the first four verses, David is asking, why do bad things happen to good people? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Has that ever happened to you, enemies? You know, we collect friends on Facebook, but how many enemies do you have? Are you on someone's hit list? Of course not. We're Christians. That implies we're kind and loving and relatively harmless. Why would anyone not like us? And not only are we Christians, but we're also Canadians. We're so polite, so humble. Everybody likes Canadians. So people like us shouldn't have any conflicts. We're too nice to have enemies. I can still remember when I didn't have any enemies. I think it was uh, June 21st, 1975. Because the very next morning, on June 22nd, I began my first day of ministry as a youth pastor. And oh my goodness, I soon found out that there were some deacons that didn't like me. And it wasn't because of my naturally curly hair. It was because of my unnaturally controversial ideas. And there were actually board members who had secret meetings to figure out to prevent me from changing things. 
They actually felt threatened. Who, me? Are you kidding? I didn't expect that. I thought I could make everyone happy. Now, when I look back over 40 years of ministry, I did succeed in making 80% of the people happy, but only 20% of the time. Because, as most pastors know, effective ministry often takes place in the presence of my enemies. That's why many pastors quit after being regularly and repeatedly hit by friendly fire. And I don't blame them. Who needs Maybe there's a less hazardous profession. Well, good luck with that. The reality is that conflict can erupt almost anywhere. There are bullies at work and hecklers at school and haters on social media. There's rivalry and road rage and unnecessary roughness. There's even feuds in our families. In a fallen world, conflict is unavoidable. I guess you could call the cemetery the Institute of Conflict Resolution because that's when it finally stops. And if you happen to be a follower of Christ, it even gets more complicated because the powers and principalities of darkness are conspiring to ruin your day, the very day that the Lord has made so that you'll be sad and despair in it. You see, Satan is a man with a plan. He comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. And in all of this conflict, the worst consequence is the collateral damage we face spiritually. It affects our relationship with God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels alienated, even abandoned. God, why aren't you helping me? It's a good question, especially since David was a man after God's own heart. Shouldn't that have counted for something? Why do the worst things keep happening to the best people? Unfortunately, it was open season on God's anointed, and the enemy was using him for target practice, and there was no spiritual force field protecting him. Poor David, his peaches and cream complexion was getting tattooed with battle scars. And that's just not fair. But it's not surprising. Because if God did not spare his own son, he may not be that squeamish about letting his children get roughed up. And I don't like that any more than you do, and neither did David. That's why he was at the complaint department. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Things sure do not look good for our hero. Not only has the enemy intimidated him with fear, they have provoked a crisis of faith. And it's going to take years of therapy and rehab before David will recover from all of this post-traumatic stress. That takes years. Or maybe not. Well, pardon the interruption. Verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. 
What? Are we still in the same psalm? Did somebody change channels? Where did this come from? The enemy had David on the ropes. It was going to be a technical knockout, but somehow David comes to his senses, lifts some punches, and gets an unexpected victory. How did he do that? Well, David had a particular set of skills, and one of them is evident repeatedly in the Psalms. David was able to live defiantly. Although overwhelmed with conflict, David suddenly, decisively, defies his fears and interrupts his problems with praise. Now, everything in verses 1 to 4 is true, but pardon the interruption. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Instead of the enemy rejoicing over his defeat, he now is rejoicing in salvation. You see, a lot of our life is really about interruptions. We want to live an abundant life, but we keep getting interrupted by a series of unfortunate, unexpected events. It's like the announcement someone noticed in the classified ads of the newspaper. The monthly meeting of the Fortune Teller Society has been canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. Really? Wow, if they get interrupted by unexpected difficulties, it can happen to anyone. I wish it was like school. You know, you, you find out right away when all the tests are scheduled. No surprises. Why can't Christianity be like that? You see, I'm a lot more spiritual when I have time to prepare for my problems. Then I got my verses ready. I, I got people praying. There's all this support. Okay, I'm ready. Hit me with your best shot. But when I'm not prepared, wow. A few weeks ago, I came upstairs ready to go to bed. I had inner peace. It was wonderful. And then I find out our son, who has Lyme disease, is being taken off a plane on a stretcher. And an ambulance is transporting him to a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. He was coming back from the doctor that he goes to see. What? I didn't expect that. And there goes my sanctification. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How did that get past you, Lord? Why couldn't you stop that? How do we react when our life gets interrupted by an unexpected crisis? You know, when that happens, I immediately become Catholic. I do. Because we Protestants do not believe in purgatory. But we often put ourselves through purgatory before we finally adopt a more heavenly attitude. By the way, our son is okay. That was an acute crisis. But some of his other problems are not so easily resolved. If only I had time 
to prepare for my crises. But that's the problem with enemies. They don't tell you when they're going to attack. It's a surprise. They set an ambush. My enemies will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. Now, is it possible to do what David did? For most of the psalm, David is preoccupied with the dangers that have interrupted his life. The crisis dominates time of possession. He is in emotional purgatory. Then all of a sudden, David defiantly interrupts his regularly scheduled complaint to make an announcement. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. So, if problems are powerful enough to interrupt our praise, maybe praise can also interrupt our problems. Is that possible? Can we do that? Are we allowed to do that? I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And that's the end of the psalm. It ends right there with verse 6. But that can't be. This is a cliffhanger. We want to know what happened to those enemies. Do we have to wait for a sequel? No, the crisis is over. But none of the circumstances have changed. The enemy has not retreated. Yeah, but David already has the victory. So the crisis is officially over. And it took how long? One, two, three, four, five verses. In five verses, David gets the victory in one of the worst conflicts of his life. I wonder if I could do that. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. What I don't like about enemies is that there's such a distraction. And a crisis is so time-consuming. How long, O oh Lord? It could take months to recover. I don't have time for this. But David finds a shortcut. I like shortcuts. When I lived here in the 80s, I knew all the shortcuts around town. So I could simply avoid rush hour gridlock most of the time. And because of these shortcuts, I could reach my destination much faster than those who were stuck in the traffic jam. Those were the good old days. So we moved back in 2014, and what happened? All my shortcuts are gone. There's signs, there's barricades everywhere. They reduced me from being an unstoppable power steering, wheel spinning, outmaneuvering king of the road, able to leap over traffic congestion in a single back alley, reduced now to a mere mortal motorist, not fast but furious. They've closed all the good shortcuts. I hate when that happens. Well, the good news is that the best shortcuts are in the Bible and they're all open. Poor David is stuck in the gridlock of depression. It looks like it's going to take forever. But then he finds a shortcut and it changes 
everything. But I trust in your unfailing love. It's amazing how things change in this psalm. If we were to check David's spiritual credit score after four verses, he would be hopelessly overdrawn. But then he starts to do some refinancing. David borrows hope using the collateral of God's unfailing love. He withdraws his feelings from the crisis and reinvests them in the joy of salvation and with a song on his lips collects the dividends of God's goodness. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. And that changes his spiritual credit score from bankrupt to multi-billionaire. He is now rich in grace. In other words, David makes a sudden U-turn, takes a shortcut through and reaches rejoicing in just five verses. I find that absolutely amazing. I want to learn how to do that. But I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation. I like shortcuts like that. They're amazing labor-saving devices. I've wasted so much time in anxiety, feeling sorry for myself. Now I always come back to faith. It always happens eventually, but it takes so long. I need to start using the shortcuts. I need to start defying my self-defeating feelings, my panic attacks. David goes from defeat to victory in just five verses. The conflict hasn't changed, but the crisis is over. And notice the three grief busters David mentions. The first is God's unfailing love, verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. That adjective is very important, unfailing. It's one thing for to love us, but his love is unfailing. So the question is, have my problems affected God's love for me? Does he love me less because I panicked? Would he love me more if I had trusted him sooner? No. Nothing changes God's love. His love is unfailing. It's not a frozen asset that you cannot access. It's cash on demand. God's face is not hiding from us. The benediction says he makes his face shine upon us. We don't ever have to wake up thinking, I wonder how God feels about me today. But I trust in your unfailing love. How do we know if we trust God? We talked about this a few weeks ago. We don't really trust him until we can, what was the word? Relax. We don't really trust him as long as there's this tension, this unresolved fear, this anxiety, this suspense. We are not really trusting him. If we really trust him, we can relax. And once we relax, the crisis for us is over. Isaiah 30, 15 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. It doesn't matter who hates us. 
It only matters who loves us. Another grief buster is the joy of salvation. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Salvation simply means that my biggest problem is already solved. It's resolved by the cross and the empty tomb, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I have other problems besides that one. And those other problems uh, I find often can return to bother me. So I need to stay alert. I need to get victory over those problems each and every time they counterattack because I won't just face them once. But it's not like that with salvation. When it comes to salvation, it is finished. It is over. It's game, set, and match. Our biggest problem is solved once and for all, now and forever, world without end. Amen. Don't ever get over the joy of your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Another grief buster is God's goodness. You see, God not only saved us and then said, there you go, don't bother me again. No, God continues delivering the goods. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. There are new mercies every morning. Every day is Christmas. What did God get you today? Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Many are asking, why do bad things happen to good people like us? That's in verses 1 to 4. The better question is, why do good things happen to unworthy people like us? That's verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And all of that was not only true for David. The bonus is that it can also be true for us. And so the conviction of verses 5 and 6 is of far greater consequence than the conflict in verses 1 to 4. So do you, do you want to save a lot of time? Then start living defiantly. When you're stuck in emotional gridlock, remember where the shortcuts are. And the next time some nasty problem rudely interrupts your faith, you know what to do. Interrupt those problems with praise. You know, I've come to church sometimes with a heavy heart because of something that was bothering me. And after two or three worship songs, it's just so different. Sometimes I don't even remember what it was because that praise interrupted the crisis in my heart. So, pardon the interruption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory that's ours through the Lord Jesus Christ and that this victory is never affected by any crisis or any circumstance or any conspiracy the enemy can ever put together. 
This is something that we have as our inheritance, inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, or fade. And that's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what he did for us. And we want to commemorate that now with the table of the Lord where we celebrate what Jesus did for us. His death on the cross, his broken body, his blood poured out for us. Thank you, Lord, for just allowing us, as unworthy as we are, to experience your unmeasurable goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the people involved with the uh, table here to come.